Hello, sweet dogs. We are new to Who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new. Or whether you just need an entry into classic Doctor Who. We are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Dan. I'm Stephen. And I'm Bridget. Hey. Hey. What's up? We've Bridget's got, back. We've got Bridget back and um, and we're really happy to have her back. And we're doing uh, The Curse of Fenric. The Curse of Fenric, yeah. It's a Seventh Doctor adventure. So it's Sylvester McCoy and um, uh, Sophie Aldred as Ace, as a companion. Really great team. Lots of chemistry. Very much so. So 989, last season of the classic series, second last story, transmitted anyway. Exactly right. So this is season 26. Um, After this, there is no more classic Doctor Who. We have to wait until the telly movie 1996. Oh, man. And then again, 2005 with Christopher Eccleston. So we really are at the tail end of classic Doctor Who here. Yeah. Big 16-year gap. Um, But... uh, it's a great story. Uh, there's so much to talk about in this one. Uh, what do we got? We got Viking curses, <laughs> uh, World War II enigma codes, uh, chemical weapons, chess games, uh, and all that rain. So much <laughs> rain. Some real, some fake. It does look that way, doesn't it? <laughs> sometimes it looks like there's just someone with a hose off screen, <laughs> but sometimes it does look real. So, uh, so yeah, curse of Fenric, baby. So, so Steve, if you were going to sum up this uh, this story in a impossibly eloquent one sentence. Description, what would it be? (laughs) So, in a remote British military base during the dark days of the Second World War, an ancient evil from beyond the dawn of time marshals its forces in a final apocalyptic battle that will pit the Doctor and his allies against vampires, and in turn, one another. Ooh, that's a long sentence. That's pretty good. That's the longest one ever, I think. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, comments Pretty good summary. That's pretty much what happens. (laughs) That's what, yeah. Did you enjoy this one, Bridget? I did enjoy it. It didn't make much sense all the way through. Well, that's a, to jump around. That's a big part of it. It was a little bit confusing for me. Plus, I, I, I don't know this doctor. He's not my doctor. Oh. So I was like, well, this is not Tom Baker. It yeah. was weird. So, so remind us, your, your doctor is, um, is Tom Baker. And that's because so you, you sort of watched him in the 90s as a kid. Yeah, that, I, he was on when I had my dinner, which is like, you know. <laughs> Every kid in the 80s. That's how he makes me Australia. On the ABC, yeah. like in at 5.30 or 6.30, yeah. maybe? Something like that. It was around, yeah, about then. around tea time? Yeah, it was definitely around dinner time. Yeah, it's good. So this, yeah, so this is the last Doctor. This is um, my Doctor. I, I was only old enough, probably. I was probably about six when he was on. So he was the, the first Doctor I got to see. And he was terrifying to me. Scared the hell out of me. Um, and these stories, I think the last couple of seasons... Um, they're quite some of the some of the stories are really scary. Some of them are some of them yeah. well, they scared the crap out of me. The remembrance and ghost light, they all scared the the pants off of me. And they're still a little they're still pretty sinister. This one especially gets pretty mad. Sometimes, yeah, some of it gets pretty crazy. Yeah, definitely. It's it signals a darker turn. Obviously, we said this back in the remembrance episode uh, into a darker doctor, I suppose, a more manipulative doctor, mm. and we definitely see that here. Um, it's not the cuddly, sort of fluffy-haired Doctor that we see with Tom Baker and the long, long woolly scarf. This is this is a Doctor who has a darker edge to him. Big toothy smile. I don't think I don't even know if uh, McCoy smiles at all in this one. Maybe Ooh. when he's playing with the baby. That's about Ooh, it. Oh, that's a good call. Actually, <laughs> does he smile? Maybe not. Good yeah, pickup. There's not a lot of um, joking and laughing in this one. It's pretty serious. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. So uh, and we've got um, Sophie Aldred playing Ace. Yeah, so, I mean, this is probably the best TARDIS team of the 80s, I think. Um, I, yeah, I think so. An enormous, as you said, there's a great chemistry between the two of them, and that really shines through. Mm. Um, but I think the character of Ace is, is better realised than any of the other companions that we've had for a long, long time. Um, you know, she, as we said in the uh, Remembrance episode before, comes from Perryvale, close to, <laughs> to where you are, Dan, <laughs> uh, where you're from. 
Um, so she has that sort of London street sort of, but uh, BBC watered down um, street culture, I suppose, about her. And, and she's yeah. a bit more rough around the edges than maybe the other screaming companions that we've seen during the 80s. Yeah, she's she's a little supposed to be troubled because she's sort of witnessed violence where she comes from. And yeah. she's had friends who've been injured or killed. Yeah, yeah definitely killed, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, she starts off her run... Doctor Who is sort of like a bit, a bit more, a bit more of a kid, and then as um as she her character progresses, she sort of grows up a little. The Doctor she sort of teaches her things and mm. takes her along and shows her things and takes her to places from her own past, and um sort of she sort of grows up in the process, which doesn't happen to before then. Before then, really, no, not at all. And it kind of foreshadows the new, the new show uh, where there's a lot more focus on the companions and they. They, they grow a lot more as characters. Doesn't it, though? Yeah. It's like they realise that the companions are also characters and might have their own stories. Mm. So we're dealing with... So it's the late 80s. Obviously, we're dealing with um, John Nathan Turner as yeah, our producer. Yeah, he's still a producer. Like, so how almost long was 10 years on. That's longer than any other as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So he starts in season 18. He takes the realms uh, in the last season of Tom Baker. And he goes through four Doctors mm. until the end of Sylvester McCoy and, in fact, the end of the show. And he went through... And in the mid-80s, the show was... Uh, Cancelled and it was off the air for well, it was it was off the air for eighteen months. The six Doctors, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So he's already been through all of that and come mm. and probably thought he was going on to be moved on to another show, which yeah. I think is what he wanted. Yeah, yeah right? can right. you imagine being in a job for ten years? Well, no, I can't. You know, that's not done anymore. How, no. how bored you'd get. And I mean, this is a guy. Who, I mean, this is a guy who wants to move on to bigger and better things, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and but keeps being saddled with the show. I suppose almost in a way. Um, Realizing that if he was moved off it, they might not actually recommission a new oh. series, which is actually what they did at the end of this um, season twenty-six. Right. Yeah, because um, they never actually, ostensibly, they never actually came out and said the show is cancelled at the end of season twenty-six, did they? They just they just went off and never came back. No, and in season twenty-six in particular, they kind of let it quietly die. There was this you know huge antipathy from the director general of the BBC at the time and the sixth floor, who really saw it as a bit of an embarrassment. You know, these were Oxbridge-educated uh, people and a sci-fi tacky show on on, um, mm. on the BBC wasn't seen as something that they wanted to do. They wanted to do, you know, Pride and Prejudice and all those types of um, literary... Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's nothing wrong with Doctor Who either. And I think what they did, particularly by putting it up against Coronation Street in the middle of the week without any sort of publicity, was to let it die a slow death mm. by sort of saying, well, look, you know, it's fallen in the ratings and it's kind of did it was sort of like four three million at the end of the the 80s there then um that was i suppose the pretext to not continue even then they didn't have the um guts i suppose to tell jnt outright and yeah make an announcement to say that doctor who had cancelled and it in does fact seem weird that they wouldn't say that to him isn't it crazy to this day there was never a, a an acknowledgement anywhere any, anywhere during the 1990s that doctor who wasn't coming back yeah so so i mean he thinks he's getting he thinks he's coming back next year so that's the yeah. kind of uh, that's that's I guess the the mindset he's in when he's making this, right? Yeah, I think at the back of his mind, he's probably fearing the spectre of <laughs> of uh, not being uh, renewed. But I think the writing's on the wall at this stage. And it's a big. This one's a big production. It's sort of uh, a lot of uh, out location work. Yeah, they were, they were in Kent. Yeah, uh, and they were at Lulworth Cove. But it looks so good, even though it's shot on videotape. The location shoot um, around Lulworth Cove and um, and Kent looks magnificent. Mm. We uh, we went to Lulworth Cove in July when we went to visit family. It's it's near where my family live, and we we went there a couple, few times on holiday as a kid. 
It's a place that gave me nightmares, actually. Mm, it gave me nightmares on holiday, too. <laughs> it was summertime, but as soon as you go there, it was July. It's like, it has its own weather system. It was and so it's freezing cold, cold blizzard. We, yeah. went, we went, I think we went for a drink somewhere, and I made Bridget walk down the hill and take, take the pictures down there, and it was raining a gale. It was so cold. <laughs> I made him buy me chips. Middle of summer. Of the, <laughs> the pain I'd suffered walking down there. But they, at the last thing, when, when, when Ace is swimming, I was like, oh, girl, I feel bad for you. She would have been God. so cold. And she, you can't tell, though. She did good. She pushed through. It's <laughs> believable that she was having a nice little swim, forgiving her mom. Wasn't a nice swim. Doing wasn't all this nice stuff, coming out of the water, seeing all, seeming all warm and smiling. Really inside, she'd be like, ah, I'm dying. BBC. <laughs> My heart's frozen. My heart's frozen. <laughs> um, and so we've got uh, Andrew Cartmel, script editor. Yeah, um, so Andrew Cartmel um, coincides his reign as script editor with the Seventh Doctor, and mm. it does sort of signal that sort of maturity into a, a darker um, and more relevant type of storytelling, I think. Mm. Um, Andrew Cartmel's, I would say, the reason why Doctor Who limped on for another three years yeah. because the stories were so good underneath him. I think so, and, and also, I mean, he definitely went to new places, but he did seem to get what the show was about, um, unlike his predecessor, yeah. uh, Say, where you kind of seem to sort of misunderstand like fundamentally what the show was about and um so he's yeah so we're going to new places but Carmel's definitely great at bringing a lot of writers who'd never written for the show before yeah i mean he he brings through the first real sort of fresh batch of writers that he can rely upon probably for the first time since the early 70s um in terms of a bbc stable of writers Mm. i love the fact though that he gives youth a chance and he's a young man himself at this stage Mm. i think he's about 27 28 he'd never worked in television before can you imagine (laughs) being given the script editor role at doctor who without having any experience that's my dream job in situation (laughs) bbc if you're listening It's unbelievable. Bring back the job of script editor, the <laughs> defunct job of script editor, and give it to Steve. That's right. Um, but yeah, it obviously um, shows just how much faith J&T had in him, and rightly so, because there is a beautiful direction that this show is taking in the last two, three years. Yeah. And it's just such a shame that, you know, in one story's time after Curse of Fenric, it just gets cancelled pretty much. Yeah. I mean, if you're unfamiliar, this is the this is right near the end of the Cartmel master plan, or, the, or the, the, the transmitted part of it, yeah. where uh, I guess Cartmel and J&T wanted to... To, um, bring back some of the mystery to the Doctor because yeah. it had been stripped away over the, the past five or six years when you got to see Gallifrey and Time Lords and all that rubbish. Mm. And so they wanted to bring back a little bit of a mystery to his identity and make him a little bit more manipulative and a bit more secretive. Yeah. Yeah. And Ace's storyline ties in with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Ian Briggs is the writer and he actually wrote yeah. Dragonfire, the first uh, story with Ace. Yeah, he basically created it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And here he is sort of closing off, or not quite closing off, but coming close to closing off the Ace storyline. We've got one more story that's really Ace-centric after yeah, this. Yeah, very Ace-centric, that's survival. But um, yeah, he's really bringing it to a sort of a like, close, I guess. Mm. Uh, and our director is, is Nicholas Mallet. Yeah, what I do think, think of him. Well, I, some of it I really liked. Some of it was unexpected and kind of like not very typical for Doctor Who. Like there's that bit where you meet Millington in the in the office, the music kicks in, mm. and then um, there's a long sort of pan over the desk, and he's just kind of weirdly frozen in place. Yeah, it's really sort of creepy, tragic music, isn't it? Yeah. And then yeah, and then there's um, there's another part just like that actually, where Millington drops the uh, poison vial on the doves, and the music starts again and it slow zooms in on him and he's like imagine what this oh, a bomb could do to a city <laughs> it's great there's just lots of bits like that it's great but yeah like yeah well the music the music kicks in kicks in a lot of times um, you notice like uh, whenever someone starts reading from the 
from the uh, Viking translations. Oh, yes, they start talking, eerie, and then the music, music. immediately yeah, kicks in. It's very like, sinister. <laughs> the wall of the day when the earth shall fall asunder and all of heaven too. The wolves of Fenric shall return for their treasure, and then shall the dark evil rule eternally. This is it. I think Mallet does a pretty decent job. I think um, in terms of the location shoot, most of it looks really, really good. Mm. But I think he's really hampered by the fact that this is a story that was probably meant to have five episodes. Yeah, we should start talking about that, I suppose. So I don't know which version our, our sweet dogs um, uh, saw, but we've seen both, haven't we? We've seen yeah. the original broadcast version, which... Um, I've never seen Bridget- it. We watched it till last week and it was amazing. I've never seen the extra bits before. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. the extra bits. So so that that's actually taken from Nicholas Na- uh, Mallet's notes um, and sort of put together. It breathes a little bit more, but I still think it's it's a bit rushed. It's still, con- it's still I found con- it very confusing. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, why are these characters here? This makes no sense. There's not enough development for this dude. Who are, who are you? What's this romance? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, it's all over the shop for me. That's but right. You couldn't get over the romance part. You were like, how come like, they're in love this now? This is not realistic. <laughs> this would never happen. He, he saved her life. It's you wartime. Do a bit more than that, dude. It's wartime. Passions are high. expect stuff now. <laughs> Passions are high. It's wartime. He saves her life. You know, well, it's the end of the world, isn't he, it, I all guess. All he does is put a scarf around her neck and, you know... And then give her a badge later on as oh, well. Yeah. Really it's like, don't even... Why? Why? It's just like, you needed more time to develop <laughs> actual characters yeah. than just wasting it on a subplot that didn't go anywhere. So, they did... So, when they when they cut it down, because it was meant to be... Was it meant to be five episodes? Yeah, that was the original plan. So, they decided to cut things out of the middle of scenes. Yeah. Which is a little, it's an odd choice, And you right? can feel yes, it, I think, yeah. a little. lose a bit of nuance and a bit of um, character development. Yeah, you're sort of thrown into situations and it's kind of like, oh, okay, we're doing this now. Oh, we're doing that now. And there isn't that sort of, uh, the filmic language that we're used to, I suppose, in building a coherent narrative isn't there. It's very, you know, uh, jumpstart sort of uh, stuff that we, we get instead. It's it's still a little conv- even the director's the, the director's cut or whatever you want to call it special edition yeah it's still a little it's still a little confusing you know there's some motivations that are a little unclear and yeah people do things random that- ram romances <laughs> that out there I think the story does suffer in the way that it's um, realized on film or videotape in this case um, there's a wonderful adaptation which is the um, Ian Briggs novelization of this and we can talk talk about that yeah. later on. But that breathes and goes into the sort of uh, psychology and backstories of the characters and it makes so much more sense. And we get little extra bits as well that uh, couldn't possibly have been filmed on a BBC budget in 1989. <laughs> but, oh, wow, it's a beautiful um, way of sort of evoking that, that entire feel. I, I want to say one thing about this. Um, I think it isn't intentional, um, but there is some sort of poetry that comes out of the way in which the images and the storylines are all thrown together. But mm. I'm going to talk about that later on, I think. Well, w- watching it with Bridget, I sort of, I mean, I, you know, she was saying, you guys know this plot, you know it off by heart. I guess I've, yeah, yeah you've seen it countless times and I must have seen it a handful of times over my life. But I, I at least know, I, you know, I know what's going on before it happens. And But watching it through Bridget's eyes, I did, yeah, I, I did get lost a few times. I was like, why are they, why is Millington doesn't want the Soviets to come now? Why doesn't he want them to steal the thing? Who are these army dudes and why are there two different types of army dudes? Mm. I didn't get it. Okay. I don't know. I did get it. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but mm. it, yeah, it seems like they would have shot a lot more, but then on the editing table. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and there's another thing I noticed when we were watching it. Um, I don't know. A lot of the dialogue, some of it's, I know it's, I'm not going to say badly recorded, but some of it's kind of quiet. You know, some of it's kind of quiet or, or lost. Yeah, lost next to the music, which is sometimes overpowering. 
Um, and I feel like it's one of those, it's quite dense. Like if you miss a line, like a single line, you mm. can be lost for quite a long time. That's true. Yeah. There's, yeah. Yeah. There's even lines watching it this time that I'd never noticed before that shed a bit of light. So you've really got to, really got to pay attention yeah. to this one. <laughs> Okay, right. Um, you know what? Um, are we expecting Clive somewhere to come in with the spoiler music? Yeah, norm- normally we would, wouldn't we? But um, this is late 80s Britain under Thatcher, and um, the BBC have been outsourcing <sighs> for years now, and um, Clive's gone. Yeah, he's been fired. Oh, God. So I guess we just pull the cord ourselves and hope the unions don't bust us for it? Uh, we uh, can't well, do two jobs on one on one. One thing. Well, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Thatcher's Britain, the union's power is gone, so... Yeah. Well, I'll use a pseudonym anyway. I'm a, oh, sorry, yeah, David okay, Agnew, so. for the purposes of this, uh, this lever pull. Here okay. we go. All right, setting combinations. Switching to automatic negative checking. Activate! And, okay, we're in spoiler town, so if you... Uh, <laughs> Well, if you haven't watched the episode by now, you better do that because this will be kind of boring if you haven't. <laughs> and deeply <laughs> confusing. No Very sense. Confusing. Deeply confusing like the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're trying to get people to watch this. So I suppose we, we should start talking about what's good about it instead of making fun of it. All right. Well, what's the one best thing for you? Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. I mean, I just love Judson and Millington. Yeah, They're I'll, so great. Do you know what? I was going to say Judson. Yeah, he's... Didn't- Dinsdale Landon is unbelievable in this. He's got an incredibly sinister voice. He plays that role as the sort of, you know, the hunchback cripple in the wheelchair with the, with the genius sort of he's got uh, a f- brain. Like a fastidious intelligence. Yeah. Uh, and he's... I like, love this character. He's so frustrated in the chair. Obviously, he's being babied by, by Nurse Crane, mm. um, who uh, he's, treats him like an invalid where he considers himself, you know, a genius. Um, and he's very much a... He must, he's definitely an allegory for... Um, Alan Turing. Alan Turing, the yeah. inventor of um, the machine that decoded the uh, the Enigma codes. So, so, do we need to backtrack here and maybe fill in a bit of context? Sure. So, Alan Turing, for those who haven't seen Benedict Cumberbatch in the Imitation Game and a number of other, um, lots of other stuff. This stuff is oh. that fairly average, like Enigma movie from the mid two thousands. Remember that, that one, Bridget? That's like two thousand one. Yeah. Enigma. I have seen a lot of movies. And, uh, <laughs> and he's actually a character in Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. And he's actually a real life dude. Yeah, right. yeah, totally. Yes. Okay, he, so it's, cool, it's pretty cool. <laughs> well, he's a mathematician who um, basically broke the German Enigma codes mm-hmm. and single-handedly for a time there turned the the tide of the war against the Nazis. And he's considered <coughs> the um, the father of modern computing. His his dream was to build the the universal machine, which is you know supposed to be a thinking machine, which is yeah. what Judson talks about thinking machines. That's right. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So know. it's a clear allegory between the two. But what links them? What 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 do you think sort of like uh, thematically? Links. Resonates, uh, che- yeah, links um, cheering and. Um, oh well, you. I mean, I suppose it's the wheelchair, right? It's an allegory for cheering. Um, famously, um, was a was a homosexual in, in Britain at a time when that was illegal. Yeah, and um, he was um, he was found out later after the, long after the war, and um, they they chemically castrated him, which yeah. is pretty horrifying. Um, what? Yeah. yeah, is that real? Yeah. Well, yeah, they they just what even is that? Well, they just give you doses of this stuff that um sort of um. Uh, Dulls your sex drive, but it also muddled his mind a little. Mm. Horrible stuff. That's crazy. Well, they, I think it was That's- in, instead of incarceration, he chose that. So it's pretty horrible. So, uh, but I think that you think that um, the wheelchair. You would is- though. You would. Yeah, castration is way worse, right? I don't know. Is it though? Oh, I think he wanted to keep your mind and your body now. I think he wanted to keep working. Well, so so the wheelchair must. I think the wheelchair is like a 
a stand-in for... Yeah, I think it's very metaphorical, isn't it? Mm. And again, it's sort of safe BBC way of doing it, but there's a, yeah. there's a strong subtext there, and there's a particularly strong subtext between Judson and Commander Millington. Yeah, there's even a, yeah, there's a definitely a subtext between um, Millington and Judson. They yeah. went to school together, and... Um, there's that scene, isn't there, where yeah. Millington basically says, I give you everything... Um, I offer you everything. I offer you everything, he says. He's yeah. frustrated because Judson always brings up the fact that I think Millington's responsible for us in some way. Well, they hint at it in the show that Millington's responsible for his, the crippling Judson. Yeah, I mean, it is in the novelization. It's quite clearly explicitly um, spelled out that it is um, a rugby tackle mm. that Millington in the peak of, um, I guess, jealousy um, causes this um, this accident. Um, and and um, Judson is a paraplegic for the rest of his life. And- uh, and it's kind of hinted at because you see the old school photo on the yeah, on the, the wall there, and you can see that they've been to school together, and it's a sports photograph. So um, I'm pretty sure what happens is that um, Judson rebuffs Millington's advances in oh, favour of uh, another boy, and uh, uh, yeah, out of jealousy, the spear tackles him on the on the rugby pitch. Yeah, and he's yeah, he's and then they're linked forever in the future. Yeah, yeah, and well, they're both. Um are they both descended from? Do they both turn out to be descended from the Vikings? They're both uh, wolves of Fenric. Oh, wolves yeah. of Fenric. Um, Judson, More on that later. Didn't land in. Think then a perfect couple, really. <laughs> yeah, both um, you unwitting. Need to find another like both unwitting Viking slaves dude, to an ancient evil. <laughs> yeah, they're perfect for each other. Totally. <laughs> oh, but he's just so. I just think he's he stands out for me, and, and he gets to do, and he gets to ham it up in another role at the end. He gets to be Fenric, and he's so oh, yeah. he's great with those with those contacts. And that's where he finds another level. He is perhaps the most sinister um, and. And the way that he underplays it as well, yeah, it reminds me of, of villains like Sutek in the Pyramids of Mars, sure. softly spoken, or maybe even Broton in um, uh, the, Zyg- <laughs> the Zygon episode that we did way back in, in number one, Terror of the Zygons. Well, well, Broton's only capable of a whisper. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's so menacing um, because yeah. he doesn't have to shout. He's so powerful. Yeah, he never gets, he never shouts, does he? He never goes over the top. I love when he's, re- my favourite's when he's... Um, when he's reading those Viking translations, I could listen to him read those all oh, day. Oh, his he's voice is magnificent. So great. It's like, yeah, it's like story time with Dr. Judson. <laughs> and I love it. It's so terrifying as well. He could be reading yeah. nursery rhymes and they'd be just well, yeah. horrific. It's just video. There's just visions of like underwater ships and mm. like dead men and stuff. It's just, he's just so great. I am the only one left alive now. I raise these stones to my wife, Astrid. May she forgive my sin. The day grows dark. And I sense the evil curse rising from the sea. Um, and Millington. Well, should we move on to Millington? Alfred Lynch? He also is particularly sinister, I find. There's mm. a, I think there's a kind of like a Hitler parallel. Obviously, we see him oh. in, the, in the sort of Nazi paraphernalia office, uh, but the moustache as well uh, <laughs> and the sort of clipped military manner and cap um, um, maybe um, incidental or accidental in the way that they sort of harken back to to Hitler. He's so he's yeah, and he's he's. I mean, he goes mad at the end, but <laughs> you know, I mean, he, you see hints of it right from the start, like straight away. He's um, I think the first time you really see him interact with anyone else is when he goes into the the girls' um, that's right listening room. Yeah, and straight away he's very um, restrained, a little uh, on the edge. Do you know what? If he if he was uh, in the modern day, he'd probably be diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, this is someone who's clearly haunted by uh, things that he's seen and done. Um, and one of those things is just sort of 
casually mentioned where he talks about locking um, his fellow sailors in that burning um, part of the ship to die and after an hour they, they couldn't hear the screams anymore he says very oh, matter man. of fact oh, yeah that's right this when is they're... someone who's clearly unhinged maybe even developed some sort of level of uh, psychopathy he's uh he just yeah and he does he like like he's he doesn't really overplay it i mean he do, when he has his um his shouting speechy bits uh it's close to it's close to ham but i don't think he ever really crosses the line it's still great i think he's really good he's um he's kind of interesting i, I did a tiny bit of uh, looking up about alfred lynch um he met his partner james culliford in 53 when they were both in at theater classes and they stayed together for almost 50 years oh wow That's so sweet uh, he, but um his partner james had a he had a stroke in 72 and Oh. Alfred Lynch moved them both from London where they where they worked to Brighton and cared for him for the next 30 years oh my God. until his partner died. Um, and then he died one year later. Oh, that's oh, heartbreaking. That's amazing. Um, and he, so he largely put aside his career um, to look after his partner. Um, and he pr- stayed mostly faithful, apparently, except for a, something else I found out um, uh, about him. Amazingly, he may have had a fling with uh, Rudolf Nureyev. Oh, <laughs> The ballet, the ballet dancer. The ballet dancer, yeah, amazing. Wow. That's, wow, what the hell? Isn't that a weird parallel between the actor's life and um, the character in terms of the way that they have, um, you know, Millington and Judson, I suppose, a codependent Still relationship. Still together, sort of, in a way. Wow, yeah. It's amazing. Really interesting. Good good detective work. <laughs> just, it's just, a, just a, a tiny bit of, yeah. Did casual. you have an affair with Crispin Glover? <laughs> no. I mean, who's to say? I'm not going to check that fact. Let's just, who knows? I'm never going to live that down. Oh, my God. Um, and who else have we got? We've got um, Captain Sorin, the um, very fast-to-romance Soviet um, captain. What do you think of him, Bridget? Didn't need to be there. Oh, what's that about? <laughs> oh, you mean the I romance? I thought he was a little yeah. bit eye candy, but... Yeah, you think he's, he's pretty beautiful? Yeah, he's beautiful. Um, Tomek Bork, I think that's the that's the name he uses. Um, his, okay. That's his, theater, his stage name. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and these guys are Polish, aren't oh, they? That's one of the things about these Soviet soldiers that I was reading about them that they're um, most of them are Polish, mm. which is like for a Polish for you know a Polish man in the eighties to be playing uh, a Soviet soldier. Obviously, they must have <laughs> all, all of them must have family who are affected by World War Two, probably largely by the Soviets. Yeah, and have fled obviously yeah. the Polish um, or yeah the Pol- uh, the Russian occupation or the communist occupation oh, of, of Poland. Terribly treated by the Soviets. Yeah, absolutely. And um, imagine what it must be like to put on that uniform and play mm. them. I mean, you know, yeah. But maybe they're not personally directly affected, but definitely their families. Like, imagine how strange it would be. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think they're sort of believable as the the Russian stand-ins. I think Bridge is kind of right. I don't think a lot of them serve too much of a narrative no, purpose. Most Soren, of them don't have much to no, do. No, not really. And Soren doesn't really come into it until right at the end where yeah. he sort of walks into the base and asks, you know, seeks to, to speak with Millington and is revealed to be a, a, a wolf of Fenric himself. So he's part of the chess uh, the chess game here. So it's, it's kind of like uh, he's more of a narrative um, plot device rather than an actual character. Uh, yeah, I think, and they spend yeah. most, of it, most of the show... They spent most of the story on that beach just having a terrible time on that beach (laughs) just dudes dying getting you know having fights with british soldiers uh man and they're in broad daylight the whole time no one ever sees them i don't know what the deal is with that cove isn't that a tourist attraction yeah Yeah, yeah. exactly (laughs) uh and we've got uh reverend wainwright played by uh, nick parsons this is amazing to me because uh i think he does a beautiful job as the the vicar with the the failing faith but I had no idea that he was like 
a bit a British celebrity. Well, he's a bit of a household name. He's a quiz. He's you know sort of he's the quiz show guy that everyone remembers. He was on Sailor Century for like a long long time. (laughs) So he's everyone in in Britain would have known who he was at that time in the eighties. Yeah, definitely. So it just sort of follows a a tradition, especially towards the in the eighties of like getting um, really well known older actors to play not huge roles. It's the Beryl Reed principle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah, J&T stunt casting, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think he just wanted to get these. Yeah, so it is definitely J&T, isn't it? I, th- I would say so. Yeah. But you know what? He's magnificent, oh, man, as Beryl Reed was. But like, I had no idea that he was um, a game show host or anything like that. I just took him as an actor and thought, wow, this is a man who's really struggling with you know his, his loss of faith. Yeah, he plays it very softly. Yeah, very much so. And he's very, seems like he's break at any moment. Isn't that beautiful, that scene that he has? He's alone in the um, in the church and he's quoting um, from the Bible um, and, and he can't bring himself uh, to, to finish it. Um, he says, faith... Oh, yeah. F- what is it? Faith, um, hope and love, and the greatest of these is... Yeah, um, and then it just cuts... Yeah, he can't bring himself to, to say love. Um, well, there's lots of stuff about faith. There's tons of stuff what about... What is that quote, though? It's so beautiful, the, the, the uh, one it's, about it's, love. Um, when I was a child, I spoke yeah, as a child. Yeah, it's Corinthians, isn't it, from the New, from New Testament. Um, and it is, yeah, when it, that's exactly what it is, yeah. Um, I didn't actually know that was a religious quote. Yeah, yeah. From the Bible. Mm. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And, of course, those three things, um, faith, hope, and love, love. very much uh, are three major themes within the Curse of Fenric itself, mm. we well, see. There's loads of faith stuff. I mean, they, you know, they have the only way they can repel hemophores is through mm-hmm. their faith. Um, and they, they sort of foreshadow that a little bit. I mean, Hardacre, Miss Hardacre comes up and talks to the Reverend at the start, and she's talking about um, doubt and indecision. That's right. Yeah, the enemies of faith. Yeah, yeah that's great. And... Um, uh, and the love stuff, yeah, the, the greatest of these is love, and then the the code word that um <laughs> they're going to use, the British are going to use to activate oh, the ultimate yeah. machine's poison is is love. That's amazing. When he says, "What else could it be?" Doctor? What else could it be? Oh, that is a so chilling great. moment, it's isn't great. it? It's so beautiful, and it's yeah, oh, just God. Hairs on the back of my neck standing up, as we say. <laughs> um, but the faith thing, just to go back to that really quickly as well, it's not. It's wonderful in the way in which it sort of posits that it's not, um, you know, religious iconography or religion itself, which is, you know, the um, anathema of the, the vampires of the hemo of the hemovores. It's actually faith itself. So, you know, we have Soren who believes 100% in the revolution, and that yeah. gives him the same true level believer. of faith. Exactly, a true believer in the revolution, the same level of, of power over these uh, e- evil beings as as someone who's um, a religious Christian. But only if he's got the little badge. <laughs> yeah and um the the part with i love the wainwright stuff about how you think he's lost his faith maybe because of the war mm. um and then you it's revealed but it's probably because of uh the british drop bombs uh the fire bombing of dresden yeah so this is another reference historical reference the british at this time are basically carpet bombing entire cities in germany in the same way that maybe the east end was bombed to mm. to, to bits by the by the germans um, um men women and children died in those raids and I think it's largely acknowledged that the only reason why um, the, the British didn't stand as, as war criminals was because they won the war. Yeah. It is relevant because it's like when you talk about this kind of stuff, it really adds to the episode. It makes me think about things that I would never have thought about. Like I'll just watch yeah. it as a piece of entertainment. Mm. But then to realise there's actual thought, you know, behind it all. Yeah, they, they, there's t- so much of that in this in this story. They add so much um, historical context and yeah. those deeper ideas about faith and love. And 
Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the strengths of the storytelling in late 80s Doctor Who, that it becomes a lot more than just perhaps a, a running around adventure in space. It's it's something that's relevant, whether it's historically relevant or, or you know, thematically relevant to the human condition. And that's really prevalent here. Hmm. So uh, anyone else? Anyone else have no? There's lots of other characters playing small roles. We're not um, going to do all of them. I, I like Miss Hardacre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's very much the shrew of the piece. Um, and and initially sort of um, positioned as a foil to Reverend uh, Wainwright, who's starting to obviously lose his faith, and he's someone who's very much, um, you know, maintaining the old ways, and whether that's in the way that she, um, you know, particularly in the way that she chastises the the two young uh, East End girls, Phyllis and Jean, for their supposed ways. Right. Oh, yeah. And so... You've read the novelization, there's, so there's, there's more backstory to her as well, right? Yeah, so this is another example. So Bridget picked up on this point, just how disjointed and maybe how unmotivated some of these characters are. There's actually a lot of, a lot of backstory to this character in the novelization, and of course Ian Briggs would have put this in at the time of writing, but it just wasn't able to be conveyed in the four episodes, which is a real shame. Uh, the suggestion is that um, Miss Hardacre is someone who has had a child out of wedlock in her youth and was sent away by her family to the country, um, here in the northeast coast of of, um, of Yorkshire, um, as a way to just sort of like hide her, get out of the way. And, and her life has been ruined as a result of that mm. poor decision in, in her youth. And of course, uh, her warning against Phyllis and Jean to go down to Maiden's, Maiden's Point, Point. Mm. obviously another BBC metaphor mm. for sexuality. Oh, yeah, when, they, when they're talking about um, Maiden's Point and Jean, and, I don't know if it's just in the extended edition, but they're like, uh, that rules us out. That line was cut from the transmitted version. Because I'd never that seen was it heavy. until last yeah. week. I was like, <laughs> I'd never... Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe that they put that in. Uh, that rules us out because they're obviously not maidens. <laughs> that's pretty risque for it 89 Doctor Who. very right? risque. And that's why I didn't uh, actually sort of go into the final cut. But obviously it so was intended at the it's time. so good because it really plays into the, the, rest of the, the rest of the story. I mean, yeah. like there's all this... There's a lot of stuff about about being a child or growing up as a child. Obviously, yeah. there's the I spoke I spoke as a child. The Corinthians quote, quote. yeah. But obviously, um, when when Wayne White's in the church on his own, he speaks to Ace about how mm. the church felt like a much warmer place when he was a child. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously Audrey the baby, who turns out to be Ace's mum. <laughs> and then other little bits like Ace says, "I'm not a little girl." There's even other parts where she says, "I used to think I'll never get married," and then I'm now I'm not so sure. Yeah. Lots of stuff about growing up. And, 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 yeah, absolutely. And also the sort of sexual awakening as well. Sure. Um, obviously, the inclusion of the Hemovores, which is just a fancy name for, for a, a vampire, essentially, yeah, is, is metaphoric. If you go back in time to, um, you know, the creation and the sort of resonance of those myths to um, sexuality, you know, we have the imagery of blood. We have, you know, that sort of, um, you know, sinister sort of alluring uh, figure in the shadows who comes to seduce. Um, all of this is sort of codified in things like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously that that's part of the myth and the aura of vampires even now. You know, you see Buffy and Angel and stuff like that. <laughs> and that, that sort of subtext of sexuality. <sighs> the whole sexy vampire oh, Twilight's another one there as well. It, it, we can't shake it. And it's sort of like a, 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 a sort of... A but you can't really have one without, you can't have yeah, one without the other, really. Exactly, yeah. So even in, you're right, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's very... It's a lot of sexy stuff in there. Mm. <laughs> well, that's sexy, but you know what I mean. It's, it's yeah. very sexualized. It's suggestive in the same way that this very. is too, yeah. Uh, and Janet Henfrey, who played Hardacre, she was also in a few other things. 
she was in as time goes by for a very long time <laughs> but she was also i found out that she was i totally forgot didn't recognize her at all she was the school teacher in the singing detective which i love um and also oh yeah i didn't you just told me this yeah she's the old lady who um the foretold kills yeah. in uh, mummy on the orient express that's the correct. uh series eight capaldi story man that's amazing amazing i have to go back and have a squeeze at that because i can't remember her at all in that. i just remember really liking that story though it's great isn't it um um, yeah, when I, but let's go back to, sorry, the, the Wainwright yeah. little chat in the uh, church when he's talking about how he's losing oh, yeah, his yeah. faith. And she says, have faith in me. Mm. I always wondered what that, mean, what, that, what that means. I think that's her sort of uh, winking to him to suggest the future doesn't turn out too bad. Right. And she doesn't want to say I'm from 1987 or whatever it is. But uh, I guess, yeah. And also as a symbol, you know, youth as a symbol of the future and of hope as well. Sure. I love that little, I love that little, that little moment. It is, isn't, it is lovely, isn't it? And this is, you mentioned this in our Remembrance of the Daleks episode. There are moments, however frenetic the plot is, there mm. are moments that are quieter where you're allowed to breathe and that you do get these sort of glimpses into the characterization of not just Ace and the Doctor, particularly Ace, but also the, the sort of supporting cast as well. They feel a lot more, if not entirely three-dimensional, then certainly somewhere between two and two, two and three dimensions, mm. uh, much more so than, than traditional Doctor Who. Um, and this is one example here where we, where we have that um, you know, beautiful little interchange, that quiet little moment between the two of them. And uh, there's a number of them as well. I mean, Ace drives the, um, the narrative in this way. But, you know, she has um, a number of conversations with Kathleen Dudman, who yeah. turns out to be a grandmom. Mm. Uh, and obviously, Audrey, the baby, is her mother. Yeah. Um, that was so great. That blew my mind as a kid. Yeah. I mean, it seems so obvious now. Yeah. Even, I mean, Bridget, who... Bridget's... Uh, she's, you're, pretty, you're pretty proficient in sci-fi, and you picked it up immediately. I mean, as soon as she yeah, said that... as soon as that baby arrived, I was like, oh, here we go! <laughs> so, wait, wait. I just watch be- a lot of TV. <laughs> <laughs> I just like... Even before you found out that her... The baby's name, Audrey, was Ace's mother's name as, as well. As I found its name, I was like, Pachim. oh yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's so obvious. It, it is. Maybe a little bit even before, I was like, why is this baby here? Mm. Maybe we were just maybe in '89 is just a more innocent time. Yeah, <laughs> they haven't didn't have a lot of uh, creating your own future timelines. Or well, maybe you know. we're just dullards. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we just watch too much Doctor, <laughs> too much time travel fiction. <laughs> Uh, Kathleen, yeah. Kathleen's pretty great. I think cause she's only got a small role. Is it Corey Pullman? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, she's really good. Um, and I just like that they put in the the um, the girls in the listening room. It's mm. sort of like an, uh, a nod to the the sort of huts, teams and teams of girls at Bletchley Park. Yes. Uh, like a cheering Bletchley Park who, um, who listen to... Uh, Germans, the German codes, yeah. To, to Germans transmitting on the radio. Um, and, you know, they... Their work was kind of shrouded in secrecy, obviously, from the rest of the mm. world. But it was also, it was even kept from them what they were actually doing for a long time, for decades. Right. Like, they didn't find out what it was for a long time. So, that they didn't actually know what they were, if they were really contributing or if they wow. were making a difference. And I thought it was sweet that they put them in there. Yeah. I think it was good they put them in there because it did actually give a sense of the time. And that's something about Doctor Who I really like is that you can transport yourself back into a time. <laughs> like, whether it's like, you know, Nazi wartime or, mm. you know, like... And, and also the, the, the beginning sort of, of time, the soups of existence. Like, I, I, <laughs> oh, I like there's, that also, about Doctor Who. there's also that thing that Bridget and I have noticed a lot when we watch TV is whenever someone's, whenever a show deals with the past, or sometimes even when a character is in a is in another time, they often put their own present day morality. They they often push it on the oh, uh, on the thing. Doctor yeah. Who doesn't uh, usually avoids that, and you, you know what I mean. Yeah. But then there's the there's that great part where um, Ace sort of insinuates that. 
she you know she doesn't assume that uh, Kathleen's married. That's right, even though she's got a baby, which at the time would be scandalous. Absolutely, as we saw with the Miss Hardacre character. And she gets up, and Kathleen gets quite upset, which is yeah. I thought that was quite realistic, wasn't it? Like these are the two girls who um, obviously um, get on very well. There's a great chemistry between them on screen. Yeah. Um, but the sort of uh, difference between their context is is really highlighted in that little interchange. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a nice touch. And again, just a really subtle done within you know half a dozen lines or so. Yeah. Um, it doesn't need to be there to move the plot along. No, it's just a small it, it little side. It. It's what you say, Bridget. It evokes yeah. that time through a, a simple interchange that doesn't reference any big historical events, but rather the morality mm. of these characters. Yeah, and the humanity. Yeah. It brings you back to, like, she she lost her husband in yeah. the war, and that's, like, something that people are living through in the late 80s, I imagine. Like, those people were there. And yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also it gives, like, a family historic history to like ace and her family and her mother yeah, growing up without cool. a father and then yeah. mm. then you can forgive her mother for being a terrible mother because she didn't started with trauma yeah. and now you That's know the story point. and you've mm. brought yourself into her world a bit more yeah, yeah definitely I hadn't mm. thought of that before, but you're right. That's that's actually like a beautiful moment of realisation. And maybe that's why we get that moment where um, Ace forgives her mother. Mm. This is just before, mm. um, you know, when they're lined up in front of the firing squad. Um, and, of course, we've got that um, sort of baptismal um, scene right at, at the, the end, end yeah. where Ace sort of, you know, absolves herself of that guilt and the hatred and the shame and all of the other emotions mm. that come with, with hating her mother. That's a really good point, Bridget. I hadn't thought of that one before. Mm. Um, I do like that that moment at the end. The, the, the doctor's speech about love and hate just before she dives in, it's kind of ruined a little bit by the, the, that Jerry Springer music really kicks in, <laughs> really kicks in there and plays over the top of it and you're like, oh, it's man. It's too high. I can't, I can't get into that last thing because I, I just think, man, it's so cold. <laughs> How is she doing this? Like any type of narrative, just like, I'm just like, Wah. One take, have to be one take. I just feel so total empathy for the actor. I was like, I can't even. Sorry, Sophie, you've got to go in again. <laughs> oh we my didn't God, get the sound how right. many times have you had to do this? <laughs> Imagine the guy who was underwater filming it. It must have been in a mega thick wetsuit. Yeah, that guy had a wetsuit. Sure. Oh yeah, maybe she had a wetsuit on under her clothes. Probably not. <laughs> Couldn't afford a second wetsuit. What are you talking about? They're not made of money. It's not even when you're in there. It's when you come out, you know, when you come out of the water and there's wind and you get like total total oh, freezing again. Chill. So it's like yeah. the second second round. And then she's had to say all those lines. So I was like, no. Uh, speaking of money, um, it's like we've said before, whenever the BBC is brought in, uh, is tasked with doing period drama so true. they nail it like they've yeah. obviously done it a they must times. have a huge prop department yeah, yeah. just for it's this like, sort of you stuff you can take that yeah, yeah man yeah. if you need a space corridor uh we can whack we some together out of um tinfoil but <laughs> if you need world war ii uh powder blues and um and beautiful costumes and, oh and yeah things like you know great sets um, you know, stationery and whatever else, typewriters being exactly period correct for you, that particular year you, you need know? an exact copy of the german naval cipher room <laughs> can do it easy <laughs> BBC. Um, and it's just we get away from those cla- all that claustrophobic stuff. Yeah, uh, and too much, too much sci-fi, sci-fi for, for lack of a better word. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, I mean Russell T Davies spoke about this and like a real impetus for when he brought it back with Rose um, is that he didn't want you know the planet creatures from the planet Zog. Mm. Um, he wanted it to be grounded in Earth and, yeah. and its history and being able to relate to characters that we see and the events that we see. Yeah. I think, yeah, this starts at this point in the last couple of years of the, the McCoy years, yeah. So good. Just location choices are just great. And mm. it's just really nice to be outside in the open air. <laughs> it sounds so dumb. It's just <laughs> nice to be outside and not cramped into a um, into a cockpit or a, 
yeah, a little corridor. Always looks much more expensive when you shoot outside, mm. probably because it is. But yeah. you know, it looks great. Yeah, you're and right. We've got that BBC rain. Uh, and some real rain, I think, is a bit where he, he actually uses his umbrella. As Definitely an umbrella. rain if it's yeah. in that cove, hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We, um, we went on holiday there when I was a kid. I completely forgotten about it. And I had nightmares for years, for decades afterwards, of um, being in a boat over very clear water and very deep down. It's just enormous, enormous fronds of kelp just waving un- at the bottom. And it scared the crap out of me. Uh, and I had nightmares about it. But I didn't realize it was a real place. I just thought it was a nightmare I had. Until a few, a few about five years ago, we went we went to Low Earth Cove for lunch, and I was like, "Oh, I'm sure, I've heard of that name." Sure, In my that dream name. nightmare. And then we, we walked around the corner, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's the place for my real." I was jumping, I was jumping up and down. Well, no, we were in a, obviously when I was a kid, we were in a boat, and I looked over the side, and there was that these enormous kelp fronds because it's very clear water in summer, and I um, it scared the crap out of me, and so I came around the corner, and I was like, "It's real." And then I found, and then also I realized it was um, maybe the you've place seen this episode when yeah. you're six, and uh, all yeah. of the underwater scary yeah. like vampire dudes that live biting oh, vampire dudes possible. under the ocean. <laughs> I, I still had a better time than the Soviet soldiers. Oh my God, <laughs> jeez, I just had an awful time on that beach. Oh my God. I think what they also really do well in this production is the underwater cam. Oh yeah, I love that. So you get like a monster eye view. Did that look particularly convincing? Because, like, from my yeah. Doctor Who eyes, it kind of did. You've got the, the, you know, the, the Viking the prow mast. Yeah, yeah, I reckon it did. I reckon that was good. I, think, I thought it was great. And I also thought it was much bigger than it really was because then you see a hand later go up to the, to the, <laughs> to the prow. I'm not sure if they meant it to be like that because it makes it look a lot This is smaller. the hemophore hand that, that snakes up. Yeah. What like, do you think? Okay, Bridget, I love these, but I don't know. The monsters? I'm, again, I'm watching it from, like, a child's eye from yeah, the you know, 90s here. The, the latex and the sort of um, the rubber that they use on the hemivores, crap good. Oh, it's so crap good. <laughs> oh, crap you know, good. It's oh. like, yeah, it's tacky oh, as. But really? it's Doctor Who. You, oh, really? It's like if it was all just like okay. modern, you can't you can't look at it. The, prost- the eyes of the like, prosthetes. So you think the, ru- yeah. the rubber head masks are rubbish? Oh, I reckon I they're cool. I reckon they're good. But they, they look a bit dated. Yeah, they hell do. Oh, okay. That's what's right. good about well, them, though. I love the, the ancient one. How the, the is sort of gills inflate. Yeah. And his eyes open and close and his but a mouth opens and closes. His like crusty, barnacly mouth opens and closes. I love the direction of the design because obviously um, the ancient one is is meant to be the last living creature on Earth mm. after, you know, half a million years of industrial pollution and at that point the Earth sort of, you know, gives up. So it's like um, this creature has has mutated and evolved to adapt its environment, mm. but not natural one, one that's been you know poisoned and uh, not mm. looked after by humanity. And of course, this is the the result of that. I just looks so sinister. It's yeah. a corruption of, as you say, like there's the gill stuff. So it's obviously like a fish kind of thing. Mm. There's like a vampiric kind of aspect with the teeth as well. It looks kind of like it might be evolved from humans. And they, they even it's so weird. Talk about how he's spent years traveling up through europe and through obviously through eastern europe oh, which is well, maybe where the dracula myth is supposed to have come from yeah from, from, so from how's the this one. this great. is so postmodern here okay so in the way in which um there's sort of like a self-reflexive quality to this obviously it's influenced by um bram stoker's dracula that's where ian briggs got the story from this sort of traveling wandering um vampiric across creature the seas, across the seas years and years and years. exactly mm-hmm. but of course it's intimated that in terms of the text itself the vampire myth is influenced by the um in a sort of recursive way by um the ancient one doesn't parson doesn't uh, the reverend even say 
Dracula is supposed to have come ashore here. Yeah, someone says it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah that's a, that was amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, and 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 this again is just another way in which Doctor Who has matured here. Its storytelling techniques have sort of caught up with um, a generation of writers who have come through, um, you know, a postmodern age. Maybe obviously have gone to university and and sort of studied um, literary theory. Um, that's really evident here. There's like a self awareness about the characters. There's uh, that fantastic bit, kind of like a breaking of the fourth wall, where where Judson says. Don't, in- um, <laughs> don't interrupt when I'm eulogizing. Oh, yeah, that was really good, <laughs> Fenric. That was really good. Yeah, or, or like Ace walks in and, of course, mirrors what we're thinking when we see Millington's office where it's like, oh, he must be a Nazi spy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's lots of great lines like that. Yeah. It's funny. There's a, I even, there's, it's even a little cheesy. I love when um, Judson's getting excited about the ultimate machine and he yep. says to... Um, talks to Millington about the future and they'll be thinking machines and he says but whose thoughts will they be yeah. <laughs> it's a great line I really love that line yeah and again it's written in 1989 with the hindsight of of, of knowing what the um, sort of computer program becomes and leads yeah. us to the moon and back and all that kind of stuff mm. but of course we're, we're sort of here at the dawn of the, the computing age and yeah Judson's comment is, is one of wonder it's beautiful mm. I love how there's that sort of sustained and repeated metatextuality throughout Curse of Fenric here as a postmodern text it's overtly intelligently knowingly postmodern and I love that sort of cleverness mm. about it. I'm going to go into that a little bit later on as well. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I think that's probably the main thing that I walk away with from, from Curse of Fenric, just how damn clever yeah. it is. And it allows itself to be. It's not embarrassed to say it's a Doctor Who story. Yeah. It's a Doctor Who story that is so, so clever. There's a lot of layers to it. And, um, like, even even though it's a, it can be a little convoluted in the way it was edited, was um, took take something away from it. I think that script and that story and those layers, they still shine through. Yeah, and I think I think the reason that they're pulling from all this, like, like the notion of Dracula, vampires, is that the audience already knows a lot about those stories. Yeah. Like, they already have that in their heads from television for sure. years and years and years. So they don't have to spend all the time, like, you know, developing the narrative. That's exactly how postmodernism works. It draws upon things that the reader is already familiar with. We talked about it before, you know, we, the Cold War elements are in there. Alan Turing's, um, you know, the Enigma um, code machine and, and Bletchley Park is in there. We've got a bunch of stuff. North, Norse mythology is mm. referenced oh, so as well. Much we North haven't mythology. talked about that yet. We need to talk it's about like that. Millington's so obsessed with, uh, yeah, with that stuff. And absolutely. Talking about the great ash tree. The um, great ash tree. Drassel, <laughs> and um, he really goes on a, off on one at the end of that speech about... Um, the great ash tree trembles to its roots. and Isn't it beautiful? I mean, and again, it's, it's very much sort of um, echoic of, of things that we're maybe not 100% familiar with, but are in that sort of cultural ether that we consume, particularly now, like with Thor being such a big Marvel <laughs> yeah. uh, franchise and Odin and all of the myths of Ragnarok uh, and Loki are something that we, um, we kind of probably know through that as well. But, you know, these are things that are in the cultural ether that it draws, up, uh, that it draws upon. Well, they're myths and there's, these are stories that my, my, my parents gave me myths yes. and legends books when I was a yep. kid. I know that you, you had those exactly. too. So well, that final battle between the gods and stuff. It's all, it's all great and it all comes in there. It's beautiful. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know if it's worth um, uh, elaborating here, but Fenric comes from obviously the yeah. um, the Fenris wolf, which is one the of wolf. the sons of Loki. Um, and, you know, we have the, the ancient one, which is a parallel to the Midgard serpent, who oh. was spew venom over, um, as you say, Yggdrasil with the great ash tree, yeah. obviously intending to be the, the ancient and, one. And isn't Fenris the wolf, isn't he chained up uh, outside, yes. the, outside the universe? He's chained, isn't he? Yes, exactly. And let the chains of Fen- yeah, Fenris shatter, it says. And, um, you know, Millington talks about Ragnarok, the, the final battle between the gods. 
Um, and it's, it only can occur when Fenris, Ulf and Midgard, the serpent, are unleashed and stand together. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's like... Uh, the, the great serpent. Yeah. That's, uh, the ancient that's, one, of yeah, course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about it. So it's just beautiful in the way in which it's not a direct retelling or parallel of it. It doesn't, it doesn't clip they, from it in a slavish way. They, don't, just, lay, they don't really lay it on thick. It's no, just... Uh, it's yeah. just, we'll grab that influence from here and yeah. this influence from there and refer to this and we know about that and we bring it all together into a big melting pot and the images that sort of come together are, uh, they have a sort of their own associative logic and this again it's postmodernism and how it works we don't we don't intend for these meanings to come to us they're Mm. just there through the fact that we we know we're consumers of of media Mm. Um, I I, can I go into at this point my, my big point around this um, and, you know, there's, there's all these influences that we draw upon. Um, you know, uh, another one's like The Seventh Seal by Igmar Bergman, oh. where we have the depiction of death. The chess game. And the chess game, yeah. exactly right. Um, and, um, you know, we have all these influences. And I think this is a really good example of the way in which um, Doctor Who does literary theory very well in terms of postmodernism. So, well, gro- definitely, like in the late 80s, I think oh, it's yeah. got to be. Is it, do you think it's just Cartmore? I think and the it, writers? I think it is Carmel who sets the tone and it's the writers who bring that and that allowed the sort of uh, space to do this rather than a sort of much more, you know, you mentioned space corridors before. You know, sure. It's, it's more than that now. I, I mean, we've definitely had layers and, um, you know, references to mythology and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, hidden meanings in the past, but yep. never so much and so intertwined and so well, well executed. I agree. I agree. And in fact, the one piece of um, literature that um, the Curse of Fenric as a result of this sort of postmodern illusion um, most evokes for me is actually The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Oh. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of go off on a bit of a tangent and feel free to edit me oh, out here Tangent time. Go crazy. But, and I don't know whether I dreamt this up or whether I read it long ago and forgot exactly where it came from, but th- I think The fir- Curse of Fenric actually is a Doctor Who retelling of The Wasteland, which is actually a way in which the entire sort of... Um, cultural and um, literary and mythic sort of um, tradition of the entire last say two three thousand years of, of western civilization is brought together in one single poem mm. and it's done in the same way that it's done in Fenric in the way that things are just thrown and smashed together images um, Elliot talks about a, a, a heap of broken images being brought together and that by itself pr- um, produces like a level of, of meaning and we've got we've got this idea in T.S. Eliot where um, he employs this thing that he calls the mythical method, which is essentially that the paralleling he says of, of contemporaneity, which is the modern day and antiquity and the past, mm-hmm. and it's through that that um, for him um, art is only possible in the 20th century. So it's a very sort of uh, you know bricolage, sort of scattered kind of approach to to making art, drawing on a number of influences that then sort of develop into a number of meanings and layers. Um, so in the wasteland itself, there's a whole bunch of stuff that Eliot draws on. There's like um, books from the Bible, operas by Wagner, poetry by Dante, and um, plays by, by Shakespeare. You've got Camelot and Parsifal, the Confessions of St. Augustine. All of these come together, and it's a damn mess. Mm. When it was first sort of published, people just couldn't understand it. Much the same way that maybe the four-part version of the Curse <laughs> of Fenric is very difficult <laughs> well, to understand. There's so, much being, there's so many ideas being thrown together, and it's, it's, so it's not true. seamless. Like, you know, it's no, pretty jagged it's and rough. It's not, but we can make that yeah. um, meaning from it. And the way that we do it is not in that sort of strict, linear, narrative fashion that we're familiar with in a four-part Doctor Who. Instead, it's through that sort of postmodern way where they resonate. 
they can make connections in our subconscious mind and we can kind of piece together the story from that. It's not linear, it's not neat, it's not simple. They veer from, it veers all over the place, right? And so what you get is, you know, think about your own, the way that your own mind works. One time you're, one moment you're contemplating the stars and next time, you, you know, the next is the dishes, you know. <laughs> uh, lost love in our shoelaces all at the once. It's basically <laughs> this complicated, not very simple, no way linear way that the brain works, that, that our, our memories work. And that's how um, Cursor Fenric works as well. Now, to finalize this point, and make this sort of tenuous claim that the Curse of Fenric is a retelling bring it, of... Uh, bring it home. Okay. Bring it on home. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to bring back this, bring, bring, bring it home, um, and to make clear this tenuous claim that I'm, I'm suggesting that yeah. the, the Curse of Fenric is a retelling of the Wasteland, yeah. I'm going to read out just the five titles that the five parts of the Wasteland have. And as I'm reading it, I want you to think about the story oh, that we've man. just seen. Part one. Burial of the Dead. <laughs> Part two, a game of chess. Three, the fire sermon. Four, death by water. And lastly, <laughs> part five, what the thunder said. I think if you want to experience, not just understand the, that sort of mythical method that T.S. Eliot uses and that postmodern rely, postmodernism relies upon, just let those headings in those five parts swim in your mind and cast back when you listen, when you're thinking about the Man, curse of Fenric. I hope that that's true. I hope that's like not too <laughs> long a draw a, a bow to draw that Cartmel those these guys are. I mean, they're writers. Writers are aware of the yeah things like the wasteland and, and I think so. And maybe, maybe it's like it's at the end of Doctor Who, right? Yeah. So maybe they're just like we've got no ideas about this. This is already written out in five steps. Let's just do this. Ah, okay. Ah. <laughs> but they didn't know it was the end. These are guys. I mean, these that's are, true. But these, they've they, they've been doing it for 10 years, right? Or how many years? And these are all young new writers. They probably yeah. have grand ambitions. So oh, yeah. You know what I mean? They're not, I, not afraid not afraid to put huge things like this into yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah, and it's a failing for the Curse of Fenric. I admit that. The, the narrative doesn't function and work in the same way that it probably should and could in mm. other Doctor Who stories. But if that's a failing, I'll take it. Oh, man, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. It's great. It is interesting. It yeah. is a When big you think of it like this. Jagged mess. But also, if you're like a kid watching this... Like, are you getting any of this? You're getting and enough. And if it's pitched for I kids... I think you're getting enough, I think, right? I think maybe you're getting enough where over time it sort of accretes in your brain and um, you keep going back to it. The Curse of Fenric for me is like one of those totem poles in Doctor Who. Mm. I will never forget it. It's no. always stuck in my mind. And every time I'll pick up a piece of poetry or, you know, one of those sort of references that we've talked about, I can't help but link back to that. And I think that's how it kind of works for me. Yeah. It's one of the big ones that I remember from being very young, watching yeah. it. Just the images is stuck in my mind for a long time. And some of the some of the things that they say, especially about myths and legends, which I was probably reading, starting to read around the same time. Yeah. All the, the Fenric stuff and the mythology and learning about World War Two at the time. Also about your nightmares about Lola's Cove. Yeah, oh, there's another example. <laughs> I don't know if that happened before or after um, Fenric aired, but my God, that stuck. I just didn't know it was a real place until maybe six or seven years ago. And then finding out that it was also the, the location <laughs> Were for they Fenric, shot Fenric. It made yeah. so much sense. Amazing. Yeah, great. Um, it's, I mean, this plot, there's lots of things about this plot that, that don't make sense, but I just don't care. Like, how the. I feel the same way. How, <laughs> how the. F 
are the Soviets <laughs> going to take the the Ultima machine back to Moscow? It's it the is size of a massive. room. <laughs> yeah, that is huge. They're going to get that on their little boat. I assume they've come from a submarine or something like that offshore. Uh, I, I can only assume that they will take the little bit in the middle, the brain of the Ultima machine. Oh, maybe? the uh, the rotors. And yeah, stuff. but the um, but, but when the, you open it, the chemical bomb is behind yeah, it. Right? You can see it pretty clearly. It's pretty, yeah, it's glowing green. I love that. <laughs> I love when when TV makes chemical weapons go glow green. So it's good, marvelous. Uh, maybe they do. I've never seen one. <laughs> so Millington intends for them to take the the Soviets to take this chemical bomb hidden inside the Ultima machine back to yep. Russia. I mean, this is when the the Soviets are allies during World War Two. But there was a lot of thinking, and the, the Allies thought getting towards the end of World War Two, they were starting to think Next what's going to happen afterwards. I mean, yeah. like General Patton famously warned about it very publicly about the, when he probably shouldn't have for PR's sake that the Soviets were going to be the next new big enemy. Yeah. And the Berlin Wall comes... It's 61. Yeah, you're right. But the hostilities commence basically upon the ceasefire. Because um, they split with, it. Yeah, They exactly split up right. the country into yep. the different zones. And, yeah. and they become the two great superpowers, I suppose, the East and the West as a result. And so, I mean, and but then Milligan changes his mind after he crazily orders the radios to be smashed <laughs> um, by, a glee, by Gleeful Perkins. He just loves smashing those things with the axe. That's great. Um, and the doctor says, now put it back together. Yeah, that was really Pretty good, good Perkins. Um, but then, and then so now he wants... To stop the Soviets from nicking it so that he can decode the uh, the Viking runes. Yes. Um, and also, so the Viking runes, the new the new ones appear when Ooh, Judson's reading out I the- I love that scene. It's beautiful. When Judson's doing his um, story time. Tonight I shall die. So, it's so good. That the, is that the final, the final passage in the, um, in the journal, the mm-hmm. Viking journal? It's so great. And the music kicks in and it's not- Yeah, it's great. And so he's reading out the final- passage and the, the runes inscribe themselves on the wall and so he causes those things to be written there and so yeah. when the machine translates those runes that's when that's when Fenric well, is released from his prison no because it does translate them but uh, it's just like the chains of Fenric shatter right no but what happens afterwards yeah. is that you have the long list of the descendants of the wolves of Fenric yeah. and the last one uh, printed is in Geiger which is uh, in the novelization the novel ascribed to the ancient one and at that point oh that's because it says in Geiger but they, they don't mention it in the maybe no. in, it's in the special edition but it just says in Geiger and I'm like that seems like it's relevant it means something but they don't yeah. say anything yeah, yeah it's strange but the novelization um, we'll talk about that towards the end but it gives so much more uh, context to the and, and, and backstory well, we're recommending to our to our listeners that you watch the show. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like maybe read. I mean, it, like with Remembrance, that novelization just blew my mind. It was mm. so it's so incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, but I haven't read the Fenric one yet. I'm going to definitely read it. But but um, but then Ace convinces uh, Judson that it's not just they're not just runes, but they're a logic diagram. Yeah. Uh, and so the, he inputs that somehow into the Ultima machine, and that's what. Invokes I'm willing to run with it, Dan, and I'll tell you why. It's like um, I'm not it, saying it's bad. No, no, just, but uh, it, trying to get it straight in my head. <laughs> is it, uh, is it in the Shakespeare Code where uh, the Carrionites, instead of using number as the basis for their logic and technology, they use words? I think it's a similar thing here. It's just uh, you know that Arthur C. Clarke principle of the highest science is indistinguishable from magic. You know, I think it works in that way. I'm I'm willing to give it a pass. Oh, totally. And, uh, also, <laughs> yeah. giving a pass that Ace suddenly realizes that his ancient runes are a computer diagram. <laughs> totally good. Uh, she goes from she goes from like from a couple of scenes of saying swimming stupid, yeah. <laughs> to uh, recognizing a computer. She's like, diagram. Oh, I'm going to save the world now. This is the diagram. And if that isn't enough, she does it again at the end, where she oh. um, basically gives Fenric the, in the, the form answer. of Soren the answer. So 
Uh, yeah. Well, she does it twice. I mean, the, the yeah. first time the doctor's like, as long as I don't realize that it's a computer diagram, we'll yeah, be fine. You and she's have like, told why me. didn't you tell me? <laughs> and then she does it again, accidentally tells um, Fenric because she thinks it's Soren. Mm. Well, it, but it, like, this is a part of the this dark manipulative uh, late yeah. late era doctor. Um, but he he's got these deep dark plans that um, stretch their tendrils out. Yeah. Uh, and but he just hasn't told Ace. If he just told her the plan, maybe she wouldn't have stuffed up both of those times and we would have got wouldn't have got a story you're right <laughs> you're dead right but yeah but that's her that's her frustration you know at the start she hints at it she says don't i'm not a girl anymore well yeah. yeah give me some information but at the very start she says um don't listen to me i'm just a mere mortal <laughs> uh, but then she starts to get really upset towards the end there's the um episode three the classic episode three info dump oh yeah where she she yells at him she screams she demands that he tell her at least what not necessarily the plan but what's going on yeah who's fenrick um, and he does his uh, his overwrought speech about yep. evil from the dawn of time, yep. which um this yeah this um, speech about the dawn of time, and also Ace's uh, seduction scene, which cop a lot of flack, and in my mind were, were awful. <laughs> Watching them again last week, they didn't see, they they held up a little better for me. <laughs> Although they were a lot better than I remember. Maybe on repeated viewing, but my god, oh, I man. think if you're coming to this fresh, it's pretty bad, huh, Bridget? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the um, the ace ace's little uh, scene with the with the soldier who is a sergeant, by the way. This guy should not be uh, leaving his post to talk to a girl. How old is Ace? I not think, a child anymore. Well, when she, I get messed up on this, but I think she's meant to be sixteen when she joins the Doctor, and this is two years later, so she's eighteen. Yeah, I'd oh. say so. Yeah, it sounds about right. She's definitely grown as a character, and you can. I mean, so Sophie Eldred's, um, she looks a little different towards the end as well. So mm. yeah. Um, I just want to talk. I just, so I just want to talk about a little bit about the Doctor and Ace's relationship uh, yeah. in this one. Obviously, um, <laughs> obviously, we've got. He's uh, been taking her around the, the last couple of seasons. He's been sort of taking her through the galaxy and uh, taking her through a past and teaching tutoring her. her. Yeah, tutoring her. Yeah, but you, you see that definitely in like he uh, when they're down with the new runes. He sort of prompts her to figure out what's, yeah. what the difference is, and then she gives the answer. Yeah, and even when they're trying to escape from this from these monsters. Uh, and they're comedically long nails. He asks. <laughs> he asks her. You know, she's like, Ace, where, do, where should we go? And she's like, The tunnels. And he's mm. like, Good point. Uh, just a little aside. Those nails drive me crazy. Like, have, <laughs> have they hold them up? You know. You know oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm a monster. They oh, hold, that was they, good. It, like, because they're quite sinister. Well, they're, they're pretty sinister. But when they hold the nails up, it just makes them seem like Panto. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like even Phyllis and Jean are quite scary, mm. even when they're in the water. It's but a bit they, children of the damned, right? Yeah, I mean they're scary, but it's just the nails. Why does that Soviet soldier get in the water with them? Oh, he's consumed by lust and falls under the from spell. them from those girls. I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, their nails are pretty long. <laughs> their nails are long, and they um, and the the bit where they threaten the Wainwright and then they walk away really slowly. Yeah, <laughs> they back yeah, away yeah. really slowly. It's like, can you guys hurry this up? <laughs> get out of here. Um, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so back to the Doctor and Ace. It's, like yeah. it's, a, it's a fatherly relationship, isn't it? Yeah, he's it's yeah. quite unique Teacher. for a companion. I, I prefer it when they're, it's a romance relationship. Oh, you <laughs> like the new series, the yes. new series, Tenement and Rose. Yes. Right? See, that's that's anathema to me. That's like because I've been raised <laughs> it's like on like a big no-no. Well, I've been raised on classic Who, where there's never, oh, there would never be a suggestion of romance <laughs> between the Doctor and his charge. Oh, I've that's got very, over it. That's very British of me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, I've got over it. But because yeah, they don't do it, and they don't really do it that much anymore. It was really yeah. sort of 
Rose and, and Martha and those early mm, new But like, at least there's a level of friendship there, but he seems very fatherly in yeah. this episode. Yeah. I, I've mentioned before that it's a Socratic relationship between mm. the two where he's asking her questions all the time. And she's bright enough, despite the fact that she's, you know, a bit of a tear away and hasn't had a formalized education, she's bright enough to be able to pick up on it and say, oh, that's what it is. Um, so, you don't really get that before then, but you get it a lot in the new, in the new show. He's always yeah. like, they're, you know, they're learning. These yeah. companions are learning. They've, they're traveling the galaxy. They're becoming more yep. worldly. If, Definitely. Um, for lack of a better word. Yeah, Rose Tyler becomes Defender of the Earth and all of that kind of thing. And, yeah, I think it starts with Ace, definitely. Mm. And he's um, he's still mean to her, though. He's still really mean. There's a bit at the start where she's like, I would rather go rock climbing. And he's like, <laughs> not in those clothes. And then just there's this <laughs> horrible laugh. And she's just totally gutted. That's just so, That was so weird. Particularly because I'm sure that he's made her wear those clothes to be era appropriate totally. for the full. <laughs> he's just like, he yeah. makes fun of her. That's so mean. Um, but then my, it's my, probably my favorite Doctor and Ace part, maybe in the whole the whole early part of the story oh, when they yeah. get they show up on the base. They're surrounded by soldiers and they, he does that classic Doctor. Turns the tables. He does that even Tom Bakery type thing where he immediately takes over. Yeah. And he's like, well, about he should be like, oh, no, there's guns pointing at me. But he's immediately like, well, about time. Call yourselves Royal Marines. <laughs> what if we were Nazis? And she joins in yeah. and says, what if we were Germans? Yeah. That's so great. That reminds me, actually, of, again, Tennant and uh, Billy Piper in... Um, the idiot slanton um mm-hmm. there's that scene where they go into the guy's house and basically berate him and she says you've hung the union jack up the other way around this is the tv one with with mother yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great <laughs> starts here starts with the doctor and ace definitely which makes by the way that betrayal at the end yeah. so much more horrific we know what's going on mm. but it doesn't dampen the emotional impact we, uh, that we feel for ace i think sure I suppose the long story is, I mean, like all of the uh, main characters are descendants of the the Viking, the yeah. Viking um, settlers. No, the Vikings were marooned. Yeah, so um, they're all touched by the the curse of Fenric. They're all wolves of Fenric, and it seems a bit uh, fortuitous. But again, this is very postmodern in the same way that characters on a on an author, a writer's page are brought together. So too the uh, the actors in this uh, in this uh, brought together by Fenric's uh, um, great plan. I always love that as a, uh, love that sort of long game where mm. he's sort of been playing this game with an ancient evil for so long and it's been locked away for so, so long. Good. And uh, this evil force has been gathering its sort of pawns, yeah, like the real pawns yeah. for its for its um, chess game towards uh, the end of the world. And and even Ace gets touched by it. Uh, obviously, that times they, they sort of retcon that her time storm that sends her to Ice World. That's how, how her character is created. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it's not even a retcon because it's Ian Briggs. I mean, he writes the yeah, character. He would have had it in mind from the start. Um, uh, the ice, the uh, time storm is actually done by Fenric and then but she's brought into play by by him. Mm. And um, and then I mean, then you've got the Doctor telling the Ancient One the what seems obvious to us because we've seen Doctor Who before. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, the, the Ancient One's never seen um, any time travel fiction, I assume. So he doesn't know, doesn't realize that he's created his own dystopic future. Yeah. That, wet, that chemical wasteland. Yeah, yeah. There's no televisions under the water in uh, <laughs> half a million years' time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he's just dealing with ancient scriptures and stuff. So he's got yeah. not a lot of time travel fiction. Um, and so... So he doesn't realize that um, in coming back in time and, and dumping the, um, the poisons into the water, he creates his own future mm. or her own future. So all the Doctor really has to do, really, is get the Ancient One to kill Fenric. But he can't do that because uh, Ace's faith in the Doctor is blocking it. So I love that scene where he tries to break down his, her faith in him. This and, is really traumatic. Yeah. And he, what does he say? Well, he's, it's the stuff... And this is the stuff where he sort of um, says, you know, I knew all along. He tries to tell Fenric that he... Do you think he really did know all along that she was a... Possibly. A, a possibly. Fenric? 
<clears throat> well, at least, and he's playing the part at least, and he's saying uh, she's a social misfit. Um, mm. She couldn't even what is it pass her exam levels? Yeah. yeah, and that's supposed to be offensive. Well, well to a badass like A, she'd just be like, "Hell yeah, didn't pass." What's but, up? Well, she's that, but, that's just a front. She's vulnerable, you know. Yeah, but also, it, you know, he it's it's the time storm that brings her to Iceworld way back in Dragonfire mm. that she supposedly concocted herself. And she's proud of it. I mean, it's like yeah. yeah, she did it herself. In fact, actually, no, you're not clever but enough it's to taken have done away, that. Yeah, it's taken away from her, and then it's really rubbed in her nose by mm. this, by the, this speech the doctor makes, and he breaks her down. And then afterwards, after it's all over, he's like, "Sorry, didn't mean it." Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really <laughs> no. But then she'd be like, "Oh yeah." She'd understand the process. Yeah, she'd be like, "Oh yeah, it's Doctor oh, Who." Yeah, yeah those hemophores. Right. They gotta have faith. That doesn't really. And that's Makes sort sense. Of, that's it's pretty. It's a pretty like familiar trope to us in science fiction or in fiction. Um, but it hasn't really happened in Doctor Who before. There's no. that bit in Ark in Space, I guess, where he's mean to Sarah yeah. to, to motivate her. Yeah, but it's only momentarily, it's, and it's nothing Not like the, the emotional trauma that's inflicted upon Ace by the Doctor in this mm. particular scene. Um, so I, I think this is another level, and it is quite harrowing to watch. Mm. And there is a sort of, uh, you know, they have a laugh and a joke at the end of part four to sort of make up for it at the end. Yeah. But I don't think it undoes um, undoes the action, I think. Yeah, I think she'd still, for a little while after that, she's like, don't I really trust this guy? Mm. It's really weaving a long, a long game. Yeah. It, it kind of also adds to, <clears throat> we, this is a story supposedly of good and evil, but I think at each and every turn it sort of underpins that. We have the soldiers from two separate sides coming together. Yes. Um, you know, Ace is someone who both comes to realise loves and hates her mother, and they're two different sides of the of, of mm. the equation. And with Fenric and, and the Doctor as supposedly good and evil as well, it's like, well, is the Doctor actually mm. a good man in the way that he acts in this way? Mm. Fenric clearly seems to be evil and bad and irredeemable, but you look at other characters like Millington, um, who perhaps um, is upon first introduction could be mistaken as the villain and the way that he acts is is, is, is he motiveless is he I mean and he's so sure yeah. about he's, there's no grey area for him it's black mm. and white like at the end he says a traitor is someone who doesn't know who That's the enemy right. is I yeah, love that good line. line yeah definitely and, and he's talking to the two soldiers who have the two pawns who have joined forces yeah. against the um, like in the chess game and that's obviously what solves the, the puzzle obviously is, against the rules of chess that's a legal move that is fine because it's hell? not about yeah that's that. not fair <laughs> I was like what so, That's so unfair. Yeah, we were, Bridget was outraged and we were like, actually, he is cheating. So it's he locked cheating. Fenric in a bottle for a 17th centuries by cheating. Yeah, what a he d- did. <laughs> I suppose so. It's a d- move, hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but at the same time, it sort of undermines this whole pretense that there are two separate black and white sides, mm. that actually there are shades of grey in between. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. Thematically, I think that resolution works. I think it's too narrow, too linear, not postmodern enough, not... Um, sort of uh, that sort of associative thinking that we talked about to sort of say, well, you know, chess is played in this way and that's the only way that it can be resolved. This is a narrative. This is a story. We can resolve it in any way that we want. And I think thematically it does resolve very beautifully in the way that the um, the answer is not through opposing one another but working together. Yeah. I just love how the end weaves in all these things. There's the Norse mythology. Yeah. There's the, the code machine, um, the descendants of the Vikings, they're weaving it all together and then the, it weaves in beautifully with this chess game and you realize that everyone has been brought all this time uh, down into this, this to this final sort of confrontation by Fenric, um, like a chess game, like a long game of chess. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. I love that. Definitely. Also, I, I like the vision of the future as some kind of chemical wasteland because mm. I, I feel like that's kind of embedded in truth. Like I feel like that's where we're heading. Yeah. 
And, and that needs to be spoken about. And that's a big thing in the 80s. I mean, this environmentalism. The, the environmental movement yeah, in the 80s. Definitely. Warning, and it's sort of a warning that if we, um, from an industrial, I think they even say in the in the, in the the story, it's a, the result of industrial over, over-industrialization. That's right, yeah. Um, but it's not. It's actually uh, the ancient one <laughs> releasing all the um, toxins into all those water. plastic bombs yeah. on the world. I think we need more movies like about this kind of future right now because at the moment we're getting lots of movies about terrorism and like all that sort of stuff is in, in the what's important to us at the moment. But that is so real. Mm. Like we might not have a planet for our children. Like, you don't want to end up looking like uh, one of those um, one of those monsters with the rubber head. You totally don't. That would be horrible. They got those huge barnacle lips. And they, yeah, there's bits. With, uh, there's a bit where they try. They, they catch Ace when she's on her the only part of filler in the whole of the that story. Filler, I think yeah. where she climbs down that ladder mm. um, and climbs back up root again. It's <laughs> great. Just to pad out five minutes worth I think of action. So. I like it. I love the bit where they're in the church trying to hold back the, the monsters and the reverend i love how because earlier in the she's like um earlier in the story she's like reverend you're wide open you left your silverware out someone's yeah. gonna nick it and then when they're trapped in the church the, the reverend uses the silverware to beat back the monsters <laughs> it's so cute i love it oh it's a lovely knowing way yeah of doing yeah. that um and and the, i was gonna say the, oh, the most beautiful part you about love that this, yeah. oh, i know what you're gonna say it's it's the doctor showing that he has faith and what does he have faith in well, if you can lip read, you can see that he's actually recounting in sequential order the names of each of his companions, starting with Susan. And it's beautiful, obviously. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just um, a measure of just how, um, how much his companions mean to him, I guess. Well, he's a true believer when it comes to his companions, like, mm. like Soren is with his uh, emblem. Yeah, yeah. And, um, An unshakable faith. It's wonderful. The Doctor believes in us. It's a beautiful message. So that really sort of brings uh, to a close our analysis of uh, hmm. Curse of Fenric, aka the Wasteland. Um, <laughs> but uh, we've got we've got a game that we like to play here on New to Who. It's called Cliffhangers, Crackers, Crackers or Clangers. <laughs> here we go. So we're going to go through all of the cliffhangers from from these episodes and talk about whether they are good or bad, aka crackers or clangers. And Bridget, you got to chime in here because we watched them again last night. Um, so number one, the Doctor and Ace find a Soviet. Yeah, actually woke me up to watch them. I was asleep, like <laughs> as dedication. Okay. Oh, that was really good. That was. I'm sorry, I woke you up. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just wanted you to be okay. because we watched the special edition a couple of weeks ago, and there are no cliffhangers in that. Remember what? Remember we no watched cliffhangers. Yeah, it's just a movie. we watched that like two and a half hour thing, and so there was there was no there were no gaps. Remember? Oh yeah. So I wanted to refresh myself as well because I got a bit mixed up about where they were. Well, we got number one, Doctor and Ace. They find like a Soviet corpse on the beach, mm. um, and in classic, you think he would have learned it over nine hundred years for, that, for the millionth time in his life. He's caught. Ambushed. He's caught next to a body and makes him look <laughs> like he's, he's killed. You know, they're obviously immediately suspects. Uh, so there's guns on him, and, you, and then uh, we get the sting. Do you think that's a cracker or a clanger? Oh, it's it's not super cracker. Dr- it's not super dramatic, is it? <laughs> no, I think um, it's probably just another instance where they ran out of time and they had to cut it there. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Like a little bit of peril, but nothing major. It's where you'd put a cliffhanger, I guess. Like, I guess so. Yeah, if, yeah. You're, if you're supposed to. Yeah. What's between a cracker and a clanger? <laughs> cranger. <Cranger. laughs> a cranger. A cranger. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, all right, so number two, uh, the Doctor and their ace realize that Millington of Judson have input the the last of the Viking runes into the Ultima machine, and so mm. he rushes to stop them, but they can't. 
They can't pull the power out. Everyone's running around and yelling. And I just love um, Alfred Lynch delivers that Millington line. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it's that weird pause. <laughs> You're too late. You're too late. <gasps> A doctor. <laughs> it's great. It's that, that breath. It's, so, it's such an odd delivery. It's great. And then you've got that classic... John Nathan Turner loves to smash Zoom into the doctor's face. <laughs> Looking and, appalled. But it's almost too long because then he, the doctor looks appalled and then he sort of takes a step back and he's like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. I think this isn't the best part of the cliffhanger for me. The best part is the hemivores rising from the sea just before we cut back to the room, the decoding room. That is great. Monster reveal. Yeah, it's 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 like um, there's a wonderful old Pertwee um, classic, The Sea Devils, and ah, you, see, you have this yeah. shot of the sea devils emerging from the uh, from the ocean, and it's kind of a little bit also in terms of the um, the hemivores appearing from behind the headstones, Michael Jackson thriller. <laughs> <laughs> there is a bit somewhere where they talk when when it's another bit where it's, I think Judson or Millington is reading the uh, the translations, yeah. and there's that great shot where you look at the Sunfit grave, oh. and the, there's smoke, and then you see yes. the hemivores rising over that gravestone. You're totally yeah. right. I love that shot. That's, that's not yeah yeah. That's what makes it for me. The uh, you're too late, doctor. Is kind of like mm, okay. I love that delivery though. It's really cool. yeah. You know he's brilliant. It's, uh, Alfred Lynch is great in this. On the edge of ham, but just not too not just not far enough to be ham. I don't think because it's a little over the top, but I, I love it. Bridget, cracker. <laughs> love a good monster reveal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're moving on to number three. Uh, Millington's gone mad. Yeah, he's lost the plot. He's doing a big speech about the grey ash trembling to its roots. The the ship's slipped its moorings. The great bit where, I mean, Judson just get, got electrocuted by the machine, but mm. you realise that it's actually Fenric's spirit going yes. from the bottle into him. And he stands up from behind the doctor. He's used Judson's body. He's using its legs. So sinister. Great. So and he opens his eyes with those those great contact lenses. Yeah. <laughs> I love that stuff. <laughs> Um, this is basically a rerun of the previous cliffhanger. I do not care, and I do not care yeah. for one reason, and that's Dinsdale Landon's impeccable diction, which yeah. is more than perfect in yeah. that delivery of that line. If it was just him on a blank stage with a black backdrop behind him saying, We play the contest again. Time goes. I would still be freaked the hell out. And he, he's not Judson. Like, immediately, I mean, yeah. obviously, because he's standing, you can tell he's not Judson, but the delivery is so different. Like, it's, so it's calmer and quieter, and it's not, like, sort of um, finicky and, and it's fussy. Sinister. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I, I love this one. Acting. Hey, dude. <laughs> and I love <laughs> The miracles of acting. Again, it's the same thing as the last one. Millington standing in yeah. front of the ultimate machine yelling. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's great. Quoting Mil- Norse mythology. Yeah. I could watch Millington oh. slowly going mad, quoting Norse mythology yeah, all day Yeah, could he just, long. like, I don't know, retell me the uh, the pl- entire plot of the, th- the Thor films? Because I'd do that. If I'd he, listen to that. If either he or, or, um, or Dinsdale... <laughs> if, he, right. if either he or Dinsdale Landon read the audio book, I would, <laughs> I would buy it in a second. That'd be amazing. Um, that's a crack. So it's a cracker for me. Me too. Cracker. Uh, and so we've got the last one, oh. um, which is different in the special edition, I think, a little. Uh, it's some, um, the ace comes out of the water. Yeah. She's had her um, her moment where we've got little um, audio grabs from earlier, which with her and the baby, and she's dealing with her mother all in the space of a few seconds underwater swimming. Uh, I think Sophie, like, swimming underwater is, is great. I think she, was, she did it well. It looks, like, yeah, terrifyingly so. cold. Oh, it definitely is, but it's a beautiful denouement to the whole um, yeah. story, I guess. And and 
for me, it should have ended there. You don't need the Doctor Who crap joke. It's at the, the end crap of joke. Part four, yeah, but we have it here again. Dangerous undercurrents. <laughs> yeah. So this is dangerous yet. undercurrents. What does it? What? Well, he says not any. Because when I was a kid, I thought he said not anymore yet. I thought that was just like a time travel joke. No, it's it's, it's the Russian yet. for no. Yeah. yeah. So not anymore. No, I guess he just, okay. just said that. Why? Yeah. Why say Russian? Well, you know, Soren's just died. She kind of fancied him. He was Russian. Thanks for reminding me of him. Yeah, I guess. I, don't know. I was really happy for a minute oh, there, and now yeah. you've just bummed me out again. A Thanks a little doctor. It's yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give it a clanger. I think clang. Oh, I'm going to give a it a clanger just because, super like... Super clanger. So cold. Don't make a girl get in that water. <laughs> I, can't, I can't, in my own conscience, say cracker, knowing that she would have had to do that like a hundred times yeah, for like probably. four hours of shooting like, <laughs> in that freezing cove of death. No way. No. So cold. Clanger. <laughs> Definite clanger. So I think my favourite one is probably the Judson reveal oh, yeah. with yep. Mad Millington. Yep. Right. Me too. Yeah, monsters raw. It's yep. pretty clear for this one, I think. Great. <laughs> so Bridget we asked this last time we're going to ask it again why should we watch this why should anyone watch this okay I'm going to say the same thing that I said last time when I guessed it that it's true of all Doctor Who but especially the ones where you go back in time to a, a place and a time in history and like this has such rich history this episode yeah. so it, it's for anyone who wants a hist- who wants a history lesson <laughs> yeah yeah Doctor Who is definitely good for that and random romance that makes no sense <laughs> and a little bit of sluttiness <laughs> oh this God. is the episode for you <laughs> oh man <laughs> All right, but what about you, Dan? Because you, you selected this, and I think oh. quite rightly so as well. Why, oh, why should we watch this? Well, it's one of the best ones. It's one of the best uh, McCoys, the Seventh seventh yeah, Doctor era. It it's very, very representative. Well, maybe it's not so representative because it's right up there at the top of, of how uh, of, the, of the best ones. Yeah. But it's, it is representative. You get a lot of, like, Cartmore Master Plan stuff. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of um, Doctor and Ace relationship stuff. Yes. And you get a lot of, um, yeah, like Bridget said, you get there's a lot of good historical context. It's great. It's sort of a lavish production. Um, it's a it's a bit of a convoluted story, but there's some great characters and certainly some great actors. Mm. My God, there's two or three like killers in there. Amazing, it's marvelous. Yeah. Um, and I love this one, and it still stands up for me. I mean, it's not perfect. There's definitely flaws, like we talked about. Lots of um, uh, things are lost in the production, I think, from the script to the making of. But um, it's, unfortunately, I think, so. I think the but I think the quality shines through. French shines through all that. Yeah, yeah, for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think um, if this story does fail, it it fails because of its ambitions, and that's never a bad thing. Particularly when it, uh, in failing to do so, if it does fail, um, there's a lot of brilliant stuff in it. Mm. I mean, I would I would even recommend the four episode original part i think it's still great yeah. i do i think i do i've only seen the special edition once a couple of weeks ago but i i, I think it's better i think it definitely yeah. um, benefits from the extra little bits and bobs well you get both on the dvd so perhaps give both a go <laughs> are we asking too much <laughs> <laughs> all right all right so we've come to the end of another podcast another episode yeah, we'd need to uh, go through our usual thank yous, yeah. shout outs and uh, general housekeeping and next time. Firstly, foremost. And always. Always. <laughs> Alistair Pearson, thank you so very much for the use of your 1990 uh, Target novelization cover. One of the last of the original range, in fact. Um, and we've talked about the novelization a number of times throughout this podcast. Yeah. If you are inclined or if you've got an Audible account, it has just recently dropped. Terry Malloy, the guy who does, um, who was oh, yeah. Davros in the 80s, does it. He, in Remembrance of the Daleks? Yep. Ah. 
he um he narrates this and is magnificent. Not in a Davros voice. I Not think. in a Davros Thank voice. God. No, he's a fantastic voice actor, and um, it is well worth listening to just his voice, particularly because there's a number of chapters that are kind of like Easter eggs that are not yeah. in the. Um, You're the, talking about your favorite one. Oh, there is one where uh, there is one which basically recounts in the form of the One Thousand and One Nights. Um, um, fairy tale: the story of the Doctor and Fenric's first meeting on the pla- on the mm. plains of uh, Arabia, and that is chilling, incredible. T- told like a story that someone's found, that's right. or someone's telling someone else. Yep. that's great. Beautiful in a in a sort of very uh, conscious retelling of the One Thousand Nights um, mm. uh, story as well. Awesome. We're going to continue sharing the love here on You to Who. Um, our first podcast recommendation is an old favourite of ours called the Crinoid Podcast. Yeah. Basically, Jim and Martin, who are very funny chaps, doing incredibly thor- thorough reviews and breakdowns of um, Doctor Who stories, both classic and new. Really recommend that one. They're at Crinoid Podcast. Um, also, much love to Proctor Who, um, who celebrated really recently their 100th episode. Doctor uh, Proctor Who is really quite fun. It's a mix, as the name suggests, of <laughs> prog rocks and sometimes pop um, with uh, with Doctor Who. That's and, great. And uh, Mark and Bob have been really supportive of us. So, gents, thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, you've been really wonderful. Um, and go check out um, Proctor Who on your iTunes. A big shout-out also to Chris Gardner from a amadmanwithablog.com. He sent us a really lovely email, and it turns out he's been, he was a really good friend of our beloved Michael Shear. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> the guy who um, played the headmaster the, in Grand Chill, yeah. and he played the headmaster in Remembrance of the Daleks. <laughs> so thanks, Chris, for your email. We loved reading that one. Um, and another shout-out, this, um, this time to a fellow uh, Australian, a citizen of Australia and a gentleman to boot, Johnny Spandrel on Twitter. He's got a fantastic blog as well called Random Hoonus. Uh, he's a big supporter of ours, but also it's just a really fantastic read um, of old Doctor Who episodes, um, and that's at Johnny Spandrel on Twitter. Uh, and I think we have to say our biggest thank you again to Bridget. Thank you so much Yay. for coming back. <laughs> Don't know if I added much, but oh, you're welcome. Oh, we love having you. It was fun. Oh, thank you, Bridget. You guys are in so deep. Hey, so <laughs> yeah, that. God, we're in the weeds big time, aren't we? <laughs> but we just love. I love. We love watching it with you. Like we, like we said many times, um, uh, Steve, Colin, Bridget, and I all used to get together and watch Doctor Who quite often and um, it's nice to watch we watch, watch Fenric the special edition of Fenric again together and it's mm. nice to watch it with you not yeah. only with you but also it helps to see it through your eyes a little bit it better. does doesn't it's it my yeah. first time around yeah and especially as since someone you're someone who has a bit more experience with new to who than with uh, sorry with new who than classic who so I mean that's what we're going for mm. yeah thank you so we've got a couple of housekeeping items uh, we're going to be taking a barely deserved break over Christmas, so a happy festive <laughs> and restive season to all of our sweet dogs. Uh, when we do return in the new year, it's going to be a slightly regenerated form. As you may have noticed, Cole's uh, absent, and um, he's decided that while it's been fun, he isn't able to, I suppose, continue to commit the huge, long, amazing hours that he's put on um, into uh, making each of these episodes yeah. new to who in the past. He spent so much time editing. Oh, he's just a genius. So, um, yeah, he's going to be taking a step back at this point. Uh, so Dan and I just want to say thanks um, very much and to make yeah. that, um, I guess, an official sort of statement to yeah. say, Cole, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank we you so you. much for everything. Thanks, Cole. I can't believe, to be honest, that you agreed to this harebrained scheme of mine <laughs> in the first place. Um, but the hours, the days, the weeks, and the months of prep that you've put in and the post-prod, you're an absolute champion. We so love you. you. We hope to get you back sometime, either officially or as a guest, at least. Yeah, or it'd, it'd be amazing. Just watch Doctor Who together. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so when we do return in 2018, we're going to be loosening up some of our self, uh, self-imposed rules about ah, yes. the story selection. 
We're like we're going to get rid of, we can start getting rid of these rules that oh, we were yeah. talking about before. Like um, the four parters, we wanted to only do four parters. And some of the continuity stuff, not too much story arc stuff, and yeah. no, no regeneration stories. Which is yeah, we'll be doing some of those. Yeah, yeah, some big ones in there. And uh, we're going to be bringing our sweet dogs a wider array of the genuinely amazing classic Who stories mm. that uh, we haven't touched on yet. And so next time, uh, new to Who will return in the new year, as we say, with a slight change of format but also with a fourth Doctor and Sarah Jane six part of this time, The Seeds of Doom. Yeah. And joining us will be a very special guest. We're very, very excited, but more on that next time. Next time. All right, so you can buy the excellent special edition DVD of Curse of Fenric, which we watched for this podcast, from BBC Online, or buy and download the episodes from iTunes. You can follow New to Who on Twitter and New to Who Podcast, and also Facebook if you're so inclined, or even email us at newtohupodcast at gmail.com. All our episodes can be found at newtohu.com or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like clicking subscribe or leaving a review, these things are a wonderful help to us, so please do. We hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm Bridget. I'm Dan. I'm Stephen. See you, see you next time. Be seeing you. Bye.